All right, and at this time, as we prepare to hear God's word, let us again approach him in prayer. Lord God, I would pray what we just sang, that your spirit would be upon us. We know that only the spirit upon us can lift that veil so that we can truly understand the word, so that we are not hindered by our own stubbornness, hindered by our own hard hearts, but rather see with the eyes and ears that uh, what you would have us know by your Holy Spirit in your word. Make this time uh, worshipful. Let my words that come out errantly just fall away and your word truly be our focus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So to be perfectly on the level with you folks, I love giving you the man behind the curtain statements about what goes on. I'm getting off easy preaching this week, as if you recall last week, Clark um, had mostly a genealogy to preach for you. And uh, whereas I'm getting the first of the 10 plagues, which you know, we know all that, we know what the point of that one is, right? And it's kind of funny because Clark and I over the past year have kind of gotten into this monthly routine where he'll say, when do you want to preach next? And my next words will usually be something along the lines of, well, this is my National Guard schedule, so I definitely can't do that. When do you want me to? And he will almost always say, oh, I don't need you to. And then he thinks about that, and he's just like, oh, but this week would be good. And so this last time when we were having that discussion, Cheryl happened to be in the room, and she goes, what about the 19th? And I assumed that meant they had a family thing going on. And I'm like, okay, cool. So that's the way that went. So I have Cheryl to thank for that I land on the week that the message is easier uh, than last week. And interestingly enough, I knew he would have a family thing going on. Both of our brothers are visiting today. That's interesting. Um, but anyway, all that said, uh, I, I, do, I just want to highlight some things from last week's message. Because like I said, you know, th those, those passages are hard. And we actually talk about, we talked about this um, in the uh, Wright Home Fellowship group. Uh, we do sermon review when we meet together. And there, there is a lot of value in those passages. As I try to say on a regular basis... We've got this story of God creating his people. Well, what's a genealogy? It's a record of those people that he's creating for himself. When he set out in Genesis to say, be fruitful and multiply, he was intending, intending for that multiplication. And so these genealogies are a record that God is keeping his word and his intent for creation. So that, you know, those, those passages are valuable in the great picture, even if they're tedious to try and uh, get a message out of. And I do also want to thank Clark and Echo. Uh, one of the things that he emphasized last week, I want to emphasize it even more, when he pointed us to, uh, forward to Galatians 3 and talking about how Paul reads that 430 years that coincides with this genealogy. Uh, when you're doing academic study of the scriptures, people love to point out these apparent discrepancies and say, gotcha, Christian believers, you know, this can't be true because that doesn't make quite makes sense. And I love it when the New Testament gives us, maybe it's not an easy answer, but it's a, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired answer to what this is. So I just want to echo that in agreement with, with, with Clark pointing that out to us. If the Apostle Paul understands that 430 years is starting with Abraham instead of Joseph, cool, that's our answer. I love it when it comes together like that. And I mention that because similarly, that's going to happen with our um, with our, uh, uh, our continued passage, we're, always, we're all in Exodus, our continued passage about Pharaoh this morning, uh, the New Testament is going to tell us very clearly what we're supposed to understand about Pharaoh and his hard heart. So, without further ado from that, let us read 
our scripture. We are again in the book of Exodus. We've got uh, chapter 7, verses 8 to 24. We should have that on the slides, I believe. Thank you very much. There we go. Exodus 7, 8 to 24. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank. And so the Egyptians could not drink, the, from the, uh, excuse me, drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the ma magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, as I've already mentioned several times, as in, uh, in our text several times. That is a big main refrain in this section. And I'll tell you, when I'm trying to come up with illustrations for these passages, I do know that I often tell uh, stories about my varying family members, but really I do try to make sure uh, that when I'm talking about something sinful or something I want to change, I only talk about myself. And as I was trying to think about the idea of being hard-hearted, I really wanted to think about something about myself where I know it doesn't matter what conversation any of us in this room have, it's not changing. And, uh, and I, I, the one that really stood out to me is I absolutely refuse 
refuse to watch what I eat, period. Don't try and tell me what's healthy or trendy right now. I, uh, I remember being a kid in the 80s again, and my grandfather, he would take the family to a Golden Corral, and that, that Golden Corral near their house it was less of, a, um, less of a buffet and more of just a steak place. And while the whole family is, is ordering steak, my grandfather, who is like, you know, in his late 50s or early 60s at the time, he's ordering chicken and rice. And it's like, what's up, Grandpa? Um, so he would do that. And then years later, my dad went on, on this kick a few years ago where he was constantly saying, I'm only putting a little bit of olive oil in my baked potatoes. I'm not covering them in butter anymore. And it's like, that's much more healthy. The olive oil permeates and the flavor gets all through. And I'm like, I'll use olive oil, but man, I'm, I'm pan frying and slathering that stuff all over. Um, and so, you know, my, my, and I know that my, both my grandfather and my father are being told by doctors, you got to watch your heart health, you know, cholesterol intake, all that stuff there. And so I'm watching them change. And they were a little older than I am now when they, when, you know, they started behaving that way. So we'll talk to me in 10 years. We'll see what I do. But I refuse to give up eating the same way as I was when I was a teenager. I will live off of, of grilled red meat you know, fried buffalo chicken, you know, fried potatoes, cheese, and bacon, and wash it all down with so much cherry Coke. You guys need to see the uh, refrigerator in my garage. Like, I guarantee I more than like have more soda than anybody uh, in this church in my, in my garage fridge. And it's such that if you hear me talking about waking up at 5.30 in the morning to run, that's not me bragging. That's me saying it out loud to hold myself accountable because the army cares how much I weigh. Um, I, and like I said, I ain't about to change the way I eat. So I just say it out loud that I'm running, you know, four miles every morning at 530 because that's, that's what I got to do to not be too big for the army. Um, so again, this is, forgive the pun, but... A lot of you may hear that. It's like, it's not just about your weight, you know, like cholesterol, salt intake, your heart health. And I'm just like, well, my heart may literally become hard. We'll see. Um, couldn't resist that. Anyway, so that said, um, as we go into Pharaoh's hardened heart, you know, my diet isn't necessarily explicitly sinful. Uh, but I think uh, that a refrain of Pharaoh's heart being hardened in today's passage, uh, we, we can all relate to this. We can all look at things in our lives um, uh, where we just we know that we're not going to change our better behavior, even though it's sinful, even though uh, we know there are better options on how to behave out there. And so. Uh, again, as we look at that in today's passage, I want us to see some contrasts here. And the main contrasts that I want us to see are that Pharaoh's heart is remaining hardened in spite of God both displaying superior power and God is displaying superior authority. Those are, are big things that are on display in God's actions in this passage today. And so um, let's first look at God's display of his superior power. I know you may have heard me just say power and authority, and sometimes we think, well, those are the same things. I'm, I'm referring to power here um, in terms of ability. God has superior abilities uh, as the creator of the universe, uh, but uh, uh, over, these, uh, uh, over these sinful Egyptians that he's dealing with right now. Um, let's read verses 8 to 13 again. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, 
Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may be a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and uh, yes, Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man uh, cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And so we've got the sign here, the working of a miracle. And uh, it was fun for me getting to this point. Um, I sit in on um, the high school uh, Sunday school um, that uh, Andrew's been teaching there, and he's been talking about miracles for the past uh, couple weeks. And one of the things I've been wanting to emphasize in those discussions uh, is, is that God doesn't just work miracles for the sake of miracles. Uh, God, when, uh, when we see these miracles, um, is doing so to ratify his word, and just plain and simple, you know, if we remember the burning bush, sometimes he's just trying to get our attention. Uh, but he's showing us his power. He is doing these things that we might believe, know, understand, and act on his word. Um, that is, that is uh, I, I, something I believe to be a general truth as we see, as we see God's uh, miraculous actions throughout the scriptures. And so the first specific miracle we have, of course, is that Aaron's staff is cast down to be made into a serpent. Just a side note, if you're like me, we always think of Moses first, but the text explicitly says, you know, it's Aaron's staff. Um, and uh, and uh, with that, being uh, made into a serpent, go to the next slide. I am not a huge uh, original language guy, as we all know Clark is, and that's okay. Um, uh, I, I'm saying this as a good thing. I constantly advocate these study Bibles to you guys. And, and like nine times out of ten, when Clark mentions a, tra uh, a translation issue, and I'm saying this as a good thing, there's usually a note about that translation issue in this study Bible. So just be aware of that for your own reference, um, you know, if you're wondering just an accessible way to, to look at these kinds of things. Um, but I just wanted to put this up for you, because this is kind of fun for me when I was doing my background reading. You see you've got that word, um, uh, tenin, and uh, that is the Hebrew word that is, that is being used here for serpent. And it's fun because when you look up the definition, it is, as it says, a marine or land monster. That is sea serpent or jackal dragon sea monster serpent whale. Okay, so that's what you call, that's what you call the semantic range when you're studying these things. It doesn't mean all those things, but it does mean when we think of a snake, you know, it might not have been a snake, and that's okay. That doesn't take any, anything away from the truth of this passage. And again, as I said earlier, you know, people love to point that stuff out who are critical of the scriptures and be like, oh, well, you think it's a snake, and it's not really. It's a sea serpent. So, you know, you don't know the Bible. Well, you know, these are issues when you're translating any ancient document. That's not exclusive um, uh, to, the to the scriptures. I mentioned that because one of the commentaries I was reading said might have been a crocodile, which, of course, makes, makes sense being around the Nile, right, or at least my stereotypical view of the Nile. And again, this is just, I'm just pointing this out to you for fun because I'm afraid of snakes. That said, I've developed a tolerance for them. If, if it were, if, if a staff went down and it became a crocodile, I would just accept that I was going to die right there. You know, like, like you just put a dinosaur in front of me. Like this is, you know. Um, so anyway, that's for fun. The second word on there, uh, nakash, that's a uh, previous mention to a serpent. That's the one that's more just snake, snake, 
just so you, just for your awareness. Anyway, like I said, this doesn't really affect the uh, uh, meaning of the passage, other than something fun I wanted you guys to be aware of as I was reading up on this. Uh, that said, so uh, with this, what we have in reaction to the miracle that has been that has been uh, perpetrated is probably not the best word. A miracle that has been enacted um, uh, on behalf of God through Aaron is we have the uh, the wise men, the sorcerers, the magicians. They respond by doing the same by their secret arts. Now, what do we make of that? Um, when, when you know when you're reading different sources on that, people don't you know 100% agree. And so a lot of times people want to be dead set. It's like, well, they're not as powerful God as God. So when they made it happen, when they repeated that miracle, they were using some sort of trick. I, I think that could be true, and it really, again, really wouldn't change the meaning of this passage. But I do want to say the scripture itself really doesn't treat it as though they didn't actually reproduce the same miracle. The scripture just, just lets it ha say, uh, be written that they did the same by their secret arts. So there could have been some sort of real demonic black magic going on here. Um, again, either way, I don't think that changes the ultimate meaning of, of this passage, but it's something for you to, to uh, consider. I, I believe this passage, the way it's written, it really leans towards, yeah, they actually did it. And so if they actually did it, let's think of the situation where we're, we're in. Pharaoh is receiving signs and deciding how to behave based on these signs, based on these miracles that are coming before him. So Moses and comes and does uh, Moses and Aaron, excuse me, come and they perform one miracle on God's behalf by God's power. And then his magicians and sorcerers and wise men they do the exact same thing. And again, if it's by demonic power, then there might not have been an immediate obvious difference as to the quality of said miracle. So. Remember I said, what's the contrast here? We're, we're talking about God displaying his superior power in terms of his superior abilities. How do we see that? In this particular miracle, it's pretty obvious. Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Aaron's miracle that he performed on God's behalf by God's power was clearly the, uh, textually, and I would imagine obviously when it was happening, the superior miracle. And yet, even though the miracle performed on God's behalf was superior, Pharaoh, due to the hardness of his heart, chooses to trust, well, my, my magicians did the same thing, and therefore we're going to go with the way I'm leaning already, which is not letting these people go. That's what we see happening here. Um, now, that said, is there more superiority displayed? And yes, as we keep going, let's read verses 14 to 19 again. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile. It shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink. 
and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Now, as we go to that one, again, this is, this is what it's like to do the process of, of uh, interpretation, you know, reading through different commentaries and, and, and such. Uh, you'll get varying opinions on what is actually happening here. There, there are many, and I, and, and I believe to be, you know, good Bible-believing Christians who do want to say that this is an intensification of natural events. And so in this particular plague, the river being turned to blood, um, there is a red sediment that comes down from, uh, I believe is I wrote what country, I think I said like Ethiopia. I didn't write it where I can clearly see it. Anyway, um, there's red sediment that comes from flooding in other areas that it affects the Nile, and, and therefore uh, it makes the river appear as blood, you know, in its redness, and, um, and, the, and they could still consider this miraculous because, well, you know, it's, just, it's the timing of it that it's happening when, you know, at Moses and Aaron's approach of Pharaoh. And I'm going to say I don't think that flies. Um, I don't think that interpretation flies. I think the text itself wants us to understand the Nile being turned to blood. So, you know, there's the obvious issues that it stinks and everything in it is dying. Well, you know, makes sense. I don't think fish can live in a pool of blood. Um, but beyond that, let's look, look at the scope of what's happening. When we ver go to verse 19, it's not just the Nile itself, but it's the canals, the ponds, the pools of water, and then it gets to even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Um, you know, if we were just talking about a, a, you know, red sediment that comes through natural flooding seasons, how would it get in every body of water? I mean, I know bodies of water can be connected, but, you know, I believe canals are usually going to be referred to as man-made and such um, like that. Uh, and again, when you want to talk about issues that are debated, the one of the, one of the uh, sources that I was reading was talking about those vessels of wood and vessels of stone. And it correctly pointed out that the original Hebrew text doesn't say vessels of wood and stone. Um, it says wood and stone. And so they're like, well, we don't know that that's an indicator that it was getting into man-made vessels because it just says wood and stone. And th again, this is a translational issue that people have. Sometimes when texts don't make much sense, yes, the English translators will add in a word to, to see, to make it make more sense to us, to make it readable. So if we were to have the most wooden translation of it, it would just say at the end of verse 19, even in wood, even in stone. And so what does that mean? Well, I know water gets into, I mean, if there's a geologist that can correct me, but I know water gets into wood, but how does water get into stone? Is that normal? Um, I know it erodes stone and it's around it, but it can, can it be in it? So again, when, when translators do these kinds of things, they're doing it in terms of context. They're doing, it, they're, they're doing it very carefully and not flippantly and haphazardly. So I do believe that you know, the fact that, that everything was turning to blood, not just in the Nile itself, but in bodies of water, man-made or otherwise, we're talking about God truly, miraculously turning everything to blood, and we're supposed to understand it that way. Um, I, I don't think that's something that we really 
need to spend any time questioning. Um, so with that, we have that same reaction uh, from the wise men, magicians, sorcerers, where they perform the same miracle. And I'm going to say the same thing as I said again. There's no indication that they didn't really do it. They turned something wa some water to blood somehow. So in one sense, good for them, and in another sense, not good at all. Um, why should any man have that power under their own power? Um, and we may say it was under some sort of uh, demonic power. Uh, we, we don't specifically know, but, but the Bible treats it as though they truly did this as well. So where's the superiority in that? Well, let's read the uh, remaining verses in our passage. I believe we can see the, uh, the superiority of God in this. Uh, starting at verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commandment, commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all of the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. But uh, th there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Pharaoh is choosing to believe the actions of his sorcerers. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And let me remind us, in last week's passage, uh, God told Moses and Aaron this was going to happen. Pharaoh was not going to listen to them. Um, but that said, Pharaoh turned into his house, and he did not take in even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Well, let's think about that. If the magicians and wise men wanted to uh, demonstrate their superiority, why would they bother just turning water into blood? Wouldn't they try to reverse this devastating plague that, that was just brought upon their land? They can't undo what God has done, and now the people are digging in the ground as you do when you're looking for fresh water. Um, you know... That God is still showing his superior ability here uh, no matter what the magicians did in their response because this plague is, is having the intended effect and coming as an act of judgment on the Egyptian people, on Pharaoh refusing to obey him. So with that, we've got God, God's demonstrated superiority um, in his power, in his ability. And of course, we would say the God of the universe who created everything, of course, is more able to do anything than anyone. But the Egyptians need to learn that lesson. That said, uh, we also have his superior authority in this passage as a superior ruler, as a superior king. And so how, we see, how do we see that? Well, we've already read the passage twice, so I'm going to trust that you uh, know what's going on. Um, it is often suggested in this passage, and I'm going to pretty much affirm this, uh, that, that God is contrasting himself above the divine Nile. The, the Nile River was the lifeblood of these Egyptian people, and it was understood in divine terms. And if you want to get technical of it, the uh, uh, Hopi, I believe is, is how you pronounce that, Hopi was not necessarily the god of the Nile in one reading that I gave, but the personification of the inundation, the flooding, and the rising of the Nile. But nonetheless, there's a divine, uh, there's a divine presence with the Nile. And so God turning it to blood certainly shows his superior over, superiority over that understanding of the divine. Likewise, 
uh, Pharaoh himself uh, would have would have divine connotations to his people, whether or not they saw him specifically as a god or just the highest of the priests. Um, it depends on who you're reading. What, uh, uh, what they want to say about that. But again, nonetheless, in this Egyptian culture, Pharaoh would have had divine connection, divine presence among the people. And again, God is demonstrating by enacting this plague on the people of Egypt that he is the true king. He is the one truly in power, both in ability and authority. So with these clear demonstrations, and like I said, this is, I, you know, I think this is a fairly straightforward and easy to understand passage here. Um, if it's so obvious that God is superior in this passage, why did Pharaoh's heart remain hardened? Uh, and again, as I said there earlier, I always love it when the scriptures tell us very clearly um, in the New Testament what we're supposed to think about these passages. One that I'll say that uh, does not explicitly reference this uh, scripture, um, but just a general uh, understanding that we need to have for our view of uh, miracles, and I'm sorry, I don't have this one on the slide, but um, in Luke 16, uh, you, some of you may be familiar with the story of, uh, and it's told in parable form, but it, it is one of our better understandings of what the afterlife may be. Uh, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus dying. And uh, for those who don't know what happened, they go, they go um, uh, to Abraham's bosom is where Lazarus goes. So he's in, in an afterlife of paradise with the Lord. And the rich man is, is in, in uh, experiencing God's wrath, experiencing God's punishment. And the rich man uh, in this, uh, experiencing this punishment, uh, punishment uh, he says to uh, Abraham, um, uh, in, in this afterlife, I beg you, Father, to send uh, him to my father's house, and that be, that be him being, I'm sorry, um, is it Lazarus? I should have looked at this uh, closer there, sorry. Um, he's looking for, a, yeah, for a, a witness to be raised from the dead to go to his five brothers that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. So again, the rich man has died, is in torment, is in wrath, in wrath, and he's looking for a resurrection to go to his brothers and warn them. And the response from Abraham is, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, think about that statement. If somebody rose from the dead that you knew was dead and came to you and said, hey, here's what the afterlife was like, wouldn't you listen? You know, it's like, you know, get, get, get your life right. Believe, believe in God, you know, believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, because otherwise you're going to torment. I think we all like to think if we experience some miracle like that, that it would just be so obvious and easy to believe. The scriptures tell us the exact opposite. If we cannot believe from Moses and the prophets, and again, this is Luke 16, 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that is God's word, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Miracles do not exist for themselves. Miracles exist to ratify God's word. We have God's word, and if we don't believe God's word, we don't believe God's word. You can throw all the miracles in the world at us. We'll come up with justifications. We'll come up with with ways to not believe them. Here with Pharaoh, we see that, well, my magicians did the same. Good enough for me. Uh, so that just remember that as a general general principle. Why isn't God giving me my miracle? 
Do you need the miracle, or do you understand and believe God at his word? Pharaoh would have done well to just listen to Moses and Aaron in the first place and believe God at his word that he needed to let, his, let those people go, let God's people go. So that's one, that's one uh, way that we can understand this passage. Again, the New Testament explicitly mentions this uh, uh, in a couple places. Uh, I do have this on the next slide. Go to Romans 9. I, I feel like I've, I've used this as a New Testament passage that we need to remember like several times in the last uh, few times that I've preached. But again, um, what is happening here is for God's purposes. Pharaoh's heart is hardened for God's purposes. From not, Romans 9... Starting at verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have uh, mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That is a tough pill to swallow. God openly takes responsibility for hardening Pharaoh. And we don't like that, but why'd he do it? He do it, did it to display his power. And as we've just gone through our Exodus text, his power is on display here, isn't it? So again, we may read that and that's not fair. God hardens whoever he hardens, you know. But, you know, then you want to follow up that statement, well, what did Pharaoh ever do to, you know, deserve that hardening? Of course Pharaoh deserves the hardening. Pharaoh's a dirty, rotten sinner, just like the rest of us. And so when we see that and we see that it looks unfair... We need to look at our own selves. We may not think of ourselves as people with hardened hearts, but are we? Left to ourselves, I would say we are. And it's not just as simple as not liking broccoli or, or you know, absolutely loving cheese fries and cherry coke. Uh, you know, there are plenty of things that I'm sure are much more explicitly sinful that I know that I attach myself to. And the same is true of you all. So that said, what we're seeing here being experienced in Egypt is really what we all deserve, and we're seeing it really on a micro level. Another place in the New Testament scriptures that ex uh, uh, explicitly reference this is on that macro level, that great cosmological level in Revelation 16. Go to that next slide there. We should have that in there. Great. Revelation 16 uh, this, this passage in, in general is listing out, uh, listing the bowls that are poured out, and it's an, a number of judgments that God is pouring out in the end times. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just, uh, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So what we see, you know, one of those very common uh, Reformed theology phrases is, is uh, already and not yet. The already that has happened here is we have in Egypt this picture of judgment, turning the rivers to blood, and the not yet is all of creation will experience that judgment. And truthfully, 
If we are honest about our own hardened hearts, we deserve that judgment. So we've got this foreshadowing in Exodus of what we uh, see happening in Revelation 16. Now, how does this all point us to Christ? And I hope this is you know, clear and obvious that it is coming, but I've said so many times, if we don't have this point us to Christ, we're doing this wrong up here. At the time when you're receiving judgment, who is seated in judgment? And that is Jesus Christ. And so as we examine the hardness of our own hearts, or as we observe the hardness of other people's hearts, their stubbornness, their, you know, like, yeah, again, it's all in good fun saying my heart is hardened against broccoli. But seriously, it, you know, if we're talking about tempers or lust or uh, whatever other sin you can come, covetousness, geez, who, who in this life is not going to stop wanting things that other people have? Um, you know, our hearts are naturally hardened. They need our hearts need the presence of Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit, and his word to be made real and effective in each and every one of our lives. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ that when this judgment comes, we will stand not on our own merit, but we will stand on the merit of Jesus Christ and his righteousness given to us. And so with that, our point of application here today uh, is, you know, again, it's not just about stubbornness and, you know, what we eat or, you know, all of our personal desires, but rather um, uh, we need to look at our refusal to not do what God would have us do. And we need to watch that we uh, are not continuing in that sin, that we are rather truly acting as our new identities in Christ. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about, you know, Moses' journey here from being, you know, a, a prince of Egypt, as the movie called him. Um, and uh, two, now he is God's prophet. And so we've watched that journey. Well, do we understand ourselves to be truly transformed? Do we understand ourselves to be ones who no longer have to be slaves to sin, that no longer have to act according to our hardened hearts? And so that is our point of, uh, of application today. Look at your stubbornness. Look at what you're holding on to. And... Pray for that ability to change for God, for God's glory according to his word and spirit. Let's pray that. Lord God, again, we are stubborn, hard-hearted people. We look at Pharaoh and say, this is obvious, Pharaoh, you need to let these people go. But we know that left to ourselves, we would have done the same as Pharaoh. So I pray that your Holy Spirit is among each and every one of us. You are telling us, what to believe, how to believe it, and how to behave according to your word. And we know, we know, we know, we cannot do this under our own power, but we can only do this by the work of Jesus Christ in our, in our lives. His record of righteousness on our behalf, his taking the punishment and the judgment for sin in ways that we would never, never, ever choose. And him being real, living, and active, and allowing us to live according to our identity in him, in Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.